So, hello everyone. Welcome to podcast number 16. My name is Naaman Jill Granderson and I'm joined by my co-host Joe McNamara. Hi everyone. A big thank you to our last guest, Charlotte Beardmore, who talks about her role at the Society and College of Radiographers and the Radiotherapy Workforce. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go and take a listen. So we're pleased to introduce our guest for this evening, Shireen Paverday, who will be discussing quality, diversity and inclusion, or EDI for short. So, hi everyone, welcome. Um, I apologise, I've got a bit of a husky voice this evening. Should be really sexy for a podcast, but um, it might put some of you off. Um, <laughs> so, Shireen, thank you so much for coming on. Um, do you want to start by telling us a little bit about your current role and your career pathway today? Sure, thank you. Hi everybody, um, and thanks for inviting me today. So, a little bit about myself. Um, I'm a daughter of immigrants, both my parents are from Mauritius. They came over to the UK uh, to study in the NHS for the nursing training predominantly, and they're both mental health nurses. Um, my career, I was adamant that I was never going to join the NHS. Nearly 18 years later, and here I am. And it's one of the things, the promises I made to myself as a child that I cringe at now because I, I do, I, I live and breathe the NHS at the moment and I think I forever will do. Um, I started as a therapy radiographer uh, back in early 2000s and um, again that wasn't really a conscious career of understanding what it meant to be a therapy radiographer I think since between the, the last 18 years there's been a lot around the profession itself what it means and also the different avenues that you can uh, progress through as a, as a therapy radiographer um, my progression through that career in itself was slow in some departments I think it took me a long time to get my first promotion. Um, I started down in Poole Hospital in Dorset or worked down there for five years. And then I moved back to London. So I'm from Hertfordshire originally, but predominantly most of my training was in London. And I started working at Imperial College and was there for about another five years actually. After that, I moved along a little bit further north of London, just north side of London. And that was working at North Middlesex Hospital where I was able to become superintendent um, quality assurance radiographer. And then my career took a bit of a sideward step. Um, for many reasons, it was opportunity as well as career progression, but also maybe a little bit of personal interest. I then moved into operational management and became the cancer manager for North Middlesex Hospital for about six years. During that time, I also covered the head of radiotherapy role for a short period whilst there was a gap and then uh, substantively into the cancer manager role. I think at that point, it was quite clear to me on, on reflection now, I mean, hindsight's a great thing, isn't it? But on reflection now, I can see that I never really wanted to be a head of, a head of department and I just didn't know what I wanted to do, even though radiotherapy I loved. Um, definitely my cancer knowledge was helpful and I felt real pride in being able to be a clinical operational manager, which was quite rare at the time that I started. Um, after about six years, I then took a complete sideward step into equality, diversity and inclusion. And that's where I am now working for the National People Directorate in the EDI team as their senior policy and evidence manager. Wow, that's amazing. And again, I think every guest we've had on who's got a slightly diverse career role have all said it was around opportunity, the right timing. Um, and it wasn't always necessarily a conscious career pathway. So it, it is interesting how some of these opportunities lead on to the best things that we love about our, our roles. Precisely. Yeah. And just on that, Joe, as well, I think I'll also say 
it was other people that recognizes that recognize something in me which i think is quite rare i think as a as a radiographer as an ahp we tend to think our careers can be and should only be very very linear we don't necessarily look further afield or or even just sideways to see what a sideways opportunity might look like and um actually it was other people that recognized maybe I could cover, maybe I could help in a certain capacity. And that's led me to then move further on into other roles as I am now in an AHP in a very random uh, profession, I guess. <laughs> but it, it does, doesn't it? It links so well to the fact that, you know, if we are able to promote our profession more, you know, get the fact that therapeutic radiographers have all these skills and knowledges, then essentially it's an opportunity then for people in management or senior mm -hmm. leadership roles to go, oh, actually, a therapeutic radiographer in oncology would be the person for the role. Um, so definitely promotion is is key, isn't it? Definitely. Um, I know where Yat, um, so I, I, I've had a really interesting couple of weeks, actually. I took over AHPs everywhere on Twitter as a bit of a Twitter takeover. And I was really lucky that I got to share some amazing um, career pathways of therapeutic radiographers, exactly like you, Shireen, in various roles. Um, and I know uh, Yas is a consultant therapeutic radiographer, and he's currently the chair of East England AHP Ethnic uh, Network and um, the Ethnic Minority SAG, which is the East of England representative yeah. for the um, and he got lo absolutely loads of follows, loads of comments, loads of retweets about the work he's doing. So it's gr so great to be able to kind of go into different platforms and almost promote some of these roles. Definitely. And, and with Yat as well, I've unapologetically kind of elbowed my way in because I, I'm from East of England. I feel, I feel a little bit of responsibility that most of my work's been in London, but that's not even my region. So yeah. I'm kind of trying to get involved in East of England work, like do something for my own ground. So yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's brilliant. Really, uh, really passionate as well about the work and also still very embedded in radiotherapy as well, which I think is incredible. That's a risk as a, as a friend of mine, she's an ex-student actually, and she's um, she's been talking to me recently about well, how, how do you get to where you got to, Shireen, and what do I need to do? And it's just looking for that flexibility. But again, it's we have pride in what we do and we recognise ourselves that what we do is so specialist that we don't necessarily think actually in therapy radiography, managing a LINAC is literally the same as managing a clinic. And we yeah. just don't, for me, certainly, I never connected the two until I realised that's what it looked like. Um, so and it is the promotion of the of the career and profession itself, but also just understanding that that transferable skills as an individual, I think, is really powerful. Yeah, and I think having in that sort of position and you in that position, it's it's quite nice to have sort of role models from different backgrounds in these kind of roles. Um, I think for me, it's still our profession is quite female dominated. So when there are male professionals who reach somewhere it's quite nice to see something for me to aim towards and especially someone from a different background who maybe not have been English to begin with it's quite nice yeah. I think I'm, I'm relatively early on but it still impacts me thinking well if I want to get somewhere who, who could I try and aspire to be it's more you're picking little bits and pieces of different people's careers um, which isn't a bad thing but hopefully um, yeah these sort of things and what both of you are involved in that will start to change in the next five ten years it'll be quite good I think and then there's also a lens that that throws back onto you, isn't it, in terms of how you progress and what you then follow through in, in aspiring to be other people. You, you recognise that someone else might actually be looking to you 
and you might then be that person that looks like them in all manners of characteristics and they can see that role model in, in that in that lens as well which I think is for me as well definitely became a, a big responsibility especially in the EDI space. Perfect so thank you um, for sharing that so Shireen what was your experience like during Covid I believe you had quite an interesting uh, interesting couple of years through the pandemic. Yeah it was varied I think is the one word I would sum it up with um guilt guilt was huge if i'm re being really honest i had a lot of guilt that i was no longer in a clinical space so when the, when wave one hit in march 2020 i was head of edi at north middlesex hospital and what do you do in edi space when you're just about learning that a you're in a pandemic b what is it that you're actually trying to do um, so that's where a lot of guilt came from me and I felt that I needed to do a little bit more. Clearly the work that I held and the, the remit that I, was that I was responsible for, I just had to pause it. I couldn't carry on with looking into culture, looking into EDI, trying to spread the word that the, all of that just had to stop because that wasn't the priority. So um, what I did do was put some scrubs back on and went back out to the wards and portering, um, helping to feed patients. The staff sickness absence was just incredible. I think everybody had a real, every organization was really hit by that. I think at one 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 time we were nearly 30% of our staff, total staff were, were off sick or absent. Um, so that was very difficult. So we needed people to support the patients, move the patients around, um, feed them, even deliver the food to the ward. So I kind of put scrubs back on and went out to do a bit of that. I think also um, really harsh work that I did was covering and supporting in the mortuary. Um, they are an extremely overlooked group of people that until for me, certainly until we hit pandemic, I really didn't understand or appreciate what it was that that staff group did. Now, utmost respect and just appreciation for them. Mm -hmm. um, the other elements that I did carry on doing was so as an operational manager, and then moved into the EDI HR space. I, I was responsible for um, the on-call rotor, so I was part of the on-call rotor for Silver Command. This is the bed management and the um, operational management, especially out of hours. I carried that on during the pandemic and became part of the Silver Command team that would lead on a daily basis and we'd rotor our days in and out. Again, that was gave greater appreciation of how pandemic was impacting across the system, not just within my organisation. Um, after I left North Middlesex and joined the national team, again, what do we do in EDI when we're still nationally in the NHS coping with the pandemic? So I was redeployed into the staff safety and supply team where I led on the staff risk assessments. And I know so many people hated doing that. So firstly, apologies, but really <laughs> and truly, it, was, it was the only way and the only method I think that we could have and actually did succeed in ensuring that we kept our staff safe because for me, it was the first time I felt like we were asking people about themselves and not risk assessing on masses. And that felt yeah. so important from, from my perspective as well. And I know other people have fed back the same. So le I led on the risk staff risk assessment work. I also um, supported with the PPE supply and the fit testing um, orders that were going on. And also the health and wellbeing support it became very clear that the health and wellbeing support that we had, A, probably wasn't enough, B, really lacked cultural variation. And I think that was so glaringly obvious, especially when it came to the point that 
we knew that the pandemic was impacting different cultures, different groups of people in a very different way. Um, so we had to support and supply actually health and wellbeing offers that were that meant something to the individual because myself, I, I've never accessed any of the, any of them. Probably if something meant something to me, I would have done. So um, I supported with that, and that was about twelve months in total. Wow! So <laughs> you did quite a lot then <laughs> during a very short space of time. It's interesting actually that you talk about the health and wellbeing support because. At Macmillan, when I was doing the clinical fellowship, it was really interesting that obviously doing a fellowship through um, a pandemic is going to throw things into a different light. But, you know, it was very obvious that, yes, we were still providing a lot of support for patients and their families. But actually, we had to also direct a lot of attention to supporting workforce um, and developing like an emotional and well-being hub. And it was something that I definitely recognised with colleagues, just even about the sleep patterns and, you know, having to go into shift work that they'd never done before and being deployed to other areas. You know, as therapeutic radiographers, I like to think, actually, as a workforce, we are very resilient. But I think there is definitely... You become kind of accustomed to what you see within your practice. Mm -hmm. And I think for some of the therapeutic radiographers that got redeployed, for intensive care they really did struggle and I, I know colleagues who've got post-traumatic stress as a result of some of the things that they observed during um, the pandemic so it felt for me as well exactly as you've described really important to provide that health and well-being support for staff um, within oncology obviously treating cancer patients but also recognizing that there were a lot of patients that were having treatment stopped outside of radiotherapy um, and I think yeah. exactly as you said, you know, that whole guilt and responsibility. I remember doing the vaccination. I remember doing going and helping with the national testing. You know, all of that. I felt that that was the only thing I could do. Yeah. As well as obviously still trying to educate the future workforce. Um, but I think any therapeutic radiographer that wasn't on the shop floor, I think we all felt slightly disconnected and, and guilty exactly as you describe it really and and exactly that and there was a point I, I did contact my colleagues in the radiotherapy department and I said to them I'm here but if I were you I wouldn't want me because I've been out of practice for so long <laughs> like I can, I can talk to patients I can do the first aid chats all of that's fine but like tell me what you want from me and I will do it and they did occasionally call on me to help with I guess bladder filling and such as, as we know can always become quite difficult but also just to be there and support and talk to the patients as patients got worried about staff as well because again that's the, the beauty of therapy radiography for me is our patients actually really get to know us yeah and we really get to know them so a lot of the patients like I haven't seen so and so for a couple of days are they okay and especially during a pandemic when you know the impact is quite so drastic there were real real concerning questions uh, that that, that carried on um through that so yeah i think it was yeah it's it's wonderful really yeah and i think joe you talked about the virtual reach with the lecturing side of things i mean i got to do a few lectures with you um from i can't remember i think i was still in taunton then when we were moving house with the dog sitting behind me on the sofa so <laughs> there are some positives that came out of it <clears throat> and i think yeah virtually as well lots of the stem stuff so the science technology engineering mathematics the outreach work that you've, you've done as well joe that really kind of was a bit easier i suppose because you could do it virtually wasn't it yeah we had 
such impressive virtual reach that I think better than I've ever had ever before. And just nationally, like for Hazel and I, actually COVID was a benefit in terms of people switching to that virtual platform. Um, and we were able to do large scale webinars um, that were really well attended, really well accessed by lots of schools and colleges. And obviously education suffered as well as a result of the pandemic. Mm. And so actually they were looking for resources. They were looking for educational things that they could send out to students. And I know we had some really great interactions with schools and colleges. And, and again, even thinking about kind of minority work EDI it was really important from a widening participation that we got access to schools that we ordinarily wouldn't have necessarily had access to or that they weren't maybe looking for us to come in and do talks um, so we definitely broadened that whole recruitment and national promotion as a result of kind of going virtual and, and we definitely look like that's going to stay and even creating the resources it's amazing now you've got a whole bank of amazing resources that you can just send out to people so it's a lot less work we just need to make sure it keeps updated <laughs> <laughs> and, and again i will say as well that it's not just the pandemic that hit us last year we had black lives matter murder of george floyd and yeah certainly in this in my experience i guess holding the role that i did as edi people whilst i was trying to deal with my own guilt there were people that were coming to me just uh, rightfully so and it's because I was it impacted me to a way that I was in tears at work as well but people were coming saying I just don't know where to go I don't know where to look I don't know who to talk to of how to deal with this huge situation sad situation that had happened outside of who we are at work but actually we all carried it with us into our workplace um, so there was a lot of dealings on and a lot of things that we had to address face face forward, really, with with um, Black Lives Matter. Yeah, and I suppose, Shireen, obviously, you've talked about the EDI work um, mm -hmm. that you're involved in now. As a person of colour, what's your personal experience of EDI? Um, yeah, it's a good question. I think. So it goes without saying, so I'm, I'm, I'm dark, I'm dark skinned, I'm female. I'm heterosexual. I don't class myself as um, with with a disability. So, in areas that I represent, uh, I know I have discriminations against me, and I know I have absolute privileges that I can I, uh, that I run with every single day. I think for me, working in EDI, a couple of things I realised definitely was it's bigger than what I actually anticipated it to be. And I know a lot of people are looking at EDI and thinking, "Oh, that's." looks really looks really shiny and it looks really um, appetizing let's get involved it's amazing it is the most satisfying career that I've, I've ever been involved in professionally it, I, I feel every day I feel lucky to be able to be doing something I love and I know that sounds incredibly cheesy because I cringe when I say it but I do I really do count myself lucky to be fortunate in that respect but it is hard because there are elements that we have to I have to work on that I carry my own personal experiences into the work that I do. So my own discriminations, my own racial trauma that I have to deal with, revelations of my own family experiences as well, which, which have just blown me away this year. So at the beginning, beginning of this year, unfortunately, I had a health complication which took me out of work for three months and it was completely unexpected, but, um, and, and I'm fine now, everything's okay. Um, but what happened was when I, I'd had a major operation and I ended up moving back to my parents for a couple of weeks just because 
they're ex-nurses, why would you not want to go back and live with your mum and dad as well when they're literally around the corner? So win-win on all, all accounts in that sense. Um, I actually got to have some really good conversations with my parents about their background, their understanding. And one of the top conversations I had with my dad was, we kind of unearthed the fact that my father's grandfather, so my great-grandfather was, um, he's actually an indentured labourer from India that was moved to Mauritius. Um, I don't even know what year it was, but I intend to go back and find out. And my dad's understanding of that was he was a worker. He was brought over from India to Mauritius to work and to earn. Whereas what we know now is what they were paid in was land. They weren't paid in money. And my dad didn't even realise that that was indentured labourship. And I've had to have a conversation which almost educated him on, actually, dad, we're, we're near enough direct descendants of slaves, which blew me away because I've been working in EDI for three years, three or four years. And I, I've always... There's always going to be some history that is attached to me, but I've never known what it is. So when I've talked about transatlantic slavery, discriminations, racisms, I always feel like I have impostered a little bit in that area because I never knew my roots. Whereas now I'm starting to feel, wow, that's actually me. Like that is who my, my bloodline is. And quite incredibly so that this is where we are now and looped around, this is the work that I'm doing. I guess other areas, of my experience in EDI is, like I've said before, is understanding my racisms that I've experienced and understanding my racial trauma, also understanding what racisms I've normalised. There was a real journey that I went through. I've, I'm a res expert from cohort three, um, which we were the cohort that got suspended over the pandemic and picked back up. And part of my journey through the res expert course really gave me an understanding of how discrimination, daily discriminations, and I wouldn't say daily microaggressions, daily discriminations have been thrown at me and I've just absorbed it because I've normalised it because that's just how you get through life and this is what life for me is always going to be like. I remember speaking to my dad again, um, he's been a quiet man all his life, we've had some great conversations, um, I remember speaking to my dad again and he always used to say to me, all of us actually, so I'm the youngest uh, of four and the only girl, and he always used to say to us, don't ever think that it's, you can't always say it's about race. Never use the race card. I remember my dad saying that. It's not always about racism. Just get on with it. Get on with it. Pull your socks up and get on with it. And the work I'm doing now and the work I've done, I now absolutely appreciate it is always about race for me. It, no matter what happens, because I have privileges in other areas, I don't have the discriminations that come with an individual who is physically disabled as well and there's a phys physical disability versus uh, invisible as well so I don't have uh, I'm privileged in that area and I remember saying to my dad dad I, I, I just believe it's always about race and he was nodding and nodding away and I said to him why, do, why are you now telling me like you're agreeing with me whereas before you've always told us never ever talk this never about your race never about your skin color and he said to me I had to tell you it was never about your skin colour because I needed you to know and be more resilient because it will always be about your skin colour. I know, Joe. I can see your face. That was exactly my little, my heart broke yeah. when you told me because I thought, wow, in your, in your age and your, and again, not to, not to put my parents down because they, In their in in their experiences, they've understood, and they've dad almost. 
for the fact that, yeah, it would always be about race. I just need you to believe that it won't be so that you become stronger. So it's been a real journey for me in EDI to understand my own experiences, my own journey, use some of that passion to, I guess, speak up and speak out for others and also raise the, raise the profile for those that aren't always brought to the table. And when you're brought to the table, just give people space to speak. It's not always my story that needs to be heard. Because I'm quite happy to sit in the background. I'm not a front-facing person, and I it, it really I get really uncomfortable sometimes, which is completely ironic. Saying that I'm just on a podcast with you guys, <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm contradicting myself, but I am. Um, but for me, it is about raising raising other people, lift, lifting as I climb. Really, that's been my my complete ethos. Oh, wow, thank you for sharing. That's quite a lot to take in. I would say <laughs> it was a lot um, to learn. <laughs> I bet, but I think kind of I think what 2020 with the Black Lives Matter taught a lot of people was actually these problems have always been there, mm-hmm. but now people are taking notice. Mm-hmm. And fine, it's quite a few years too late, however you want to say it, but it's happening. So these conversations people find uncomfortable, but it needs to be said. I think I said to both of you before I wasn't feeling that comfortable about this one, but it does need to be said. Someone needs to speak up, even if it is sharing you know, those tiny little revelations that you have that you've learned, it's, it's important for people to hear it. Um, mm-hmm. So although I don't sound like it, one of the many microaggressions that I've had, I was born and raised in India. I spoke maybe three words of English when I moved here at the most. Um, and even then I wasn't saying them correctly. So in 1999, moved to a very affluent white area right next to a council estate. Um, yeah, it was quite difficult to leave and not get something thrown at you for a while or all that kind of stuff or primary school some of the teachers were lovely but some just absolutely hated me I think probably because I couldn't understand them but even when I was trying so hard they just yeah no I'd always have to go to the toilet after other people I'd have to sit in the corner I wouldn't get certain things and then we moved to a different school and it got better but I was the only non-Christian at Church of England school which I mean at that age, you don't, it doesn't really matter. You just want to make friends and get on. The headmaster was lovely, but a few of the teachers weren't. And that's fine. I mean, looking back on it, it's not very nice for, a, I don't know, a bit, quite a young kid. But it's my experience. I suppose everyone's going to have their own experience of racism. There were a few other people who were there who were sort of non-white, but they were Christian. So they were slightly more accepted than I was. If I don't know how, I know that sounds weird to say, but that's how it was. Um so I suppose I was quite fortunate to go to a good school because my mum worked very hard, went to a nice private school, played lots of sport, got lots of opportunities. And that's where you were saying, Shireen, with your kind of those privileges that you just you wouldn't have expected. I mean, I got to travel everywhere playing sport. I played really good level cricket, et cetera. And I worked very, 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 very hard to lose my Indian accent because just every day I'd be berated for it. Um, but i did find out recently so my other half she's she's english but i keep getting a few sayings wrong so i didn't know that suede and swede were different so <laughs> we were make, we were cooking a roast and i kept calling it suede it's obviously not <laughs> so, <laughs> stuff like that but um so i suppose that, that was one of the funny things that you know although i didn't grow up here or speak very good english or whatever and i get complimented for it there are little basic things that are probably yeah i don't know to be um, fair, name and I. <laughs> There's lots of things. I don't know why, but all of my family berate me because I call. I didn't realise that a coat hanger was called coat hanger. I thought it was coke hanger, and I've always called gravery 
No, I've always called gravy gravery. See? <laughs> so, there's no right or wrong, is there? <laughs> there's no right or wrong. I think Swede and Swede, there is definitely a right or wrong. <laughs> I, mean, that's, I mean, that's just endearing. That's cute, I have to admit. You're probably going to hate me saying that, but that is endearing. <laughs> But, it, it, but you're right, it is, it is those little things that you, you just don't know until you know. And it's, um, and, and you, until you, you told me your name, and I would never have known that you had an accent that wasn't typically British. And, and that is, my, my two older brothers were born and raised um, up until they're about six in Mauritius. And it was the one thing my dad was really strict on them for was, we will only speak English in the house and you will respond to me back in English. And I get it. I totally understand why he, why he did it that way. But you said something there about um, school, and I'll, I'll share with you something that I've that I kind of another revelation, I guess. I um up until recently, I've been a governor at, at a local school in St Albans, which is where I was born and raised, and it was actually my old primary school, and um, which was really bizarre going back in. I have to like that's another story, but it's very weird. Um, when I did go back in, so, so something about me when I was a child from about primary school years I just went off milk and this story is going somewhere so bear with me so I went I went off milk I don't know why I can never remember why but I just remember call it from six to about 14 I just went off milk didn't want it didn't want it and I went back into the school a year and a half ago ish on my first tour around it from being appointed as a local governor and um I walked into the old classroom that I had loads of fun memories in but also some quite horrible memories as well and I, this memory of milk just came flooding back to me. So I'm old enough to, to have been in that kind of category where we had milk cartons given to us at school. Um, I even had milk bottles, so that's kind of how old I am. Uh, little mini milk bottles we were given. And the bit you mentioned there, Naaman, was about waiting to go to the toilet and being last in the line. And the memory that came back to me was... I remember that the teacher would call us all up to go and collect our milk cartons and they'd just be kept in the fridge um, or they'd just been delivered that morning and they were really cold and you knew they were cold because of the condensation beads on the edges and that's how you knew it was a good nice nice little glug of cold milk. Inevitably there was always one child that was off school on that day maybe so there's always one milk that was left over and this is the time before they had fridges in this classroom so there was only one major fridge and you never put the milk back in the fridge. And I remember being kept on being told, wait until the end. If I, we were queuing to go for the milk, I was always, my teacher would literally put their hand in front of me. Oh no, it's not your turn yet, Shireen. And this is a teacher and I think, oh, okay, that's fine. I'll wait my turn. You wait your turn, you wait your turn. And the milk carton that's left for you is the one that isn't cold. And I remember it must've been a week in a row sipping it and it was off. And that is why I went off milk. And I didn't even, I'd parked it so much into a box and just dealt with it. But it's only a year ago, so late 30s, that I realised that was the whole issue with me and going off milk when I was a kid, because basically the teacher had said it's not my turn. And it was just just understanding that. That's one of the, the things that I was sharing about my journey and my revelation of, oh, my gosh, I've just boxed all this up for so long, not even realised it was what it was or it was the reason why it was that way. And there's so many experiences through school being held back in lower set classes because they didn't want me to sit the top set maths class and God bless her, my mother marching into school and saying you're sitting there in the lower set but she's sitting the higher set maths and my parents had to work harder to then put me through private tuition etc cetera, etc cetera. and so many things like that but until you really 
sit and reflect on it, certainly for me, I never re really understood that that is discrimination, that is racism because of my skin colour. I think that innocence as a child, mm. um, I don't know, there's just something around it. I mean, those are all the stories, same as you, boxed up or, you know, as your dad said, trying to build that resilience. Yeah. But it's not a resilience that you should be kind of getting if you want as a kid. But I think for me, one, one of my worst things was when the, the London bombings happened. So my mum worked in the city and got a call that she was a few tubes back and they had to be evacuated through and stuff. And then the next day having to go to school, every single day for like three weeks I got stopped by the police and it wasn't even the normal police it's like dogs anti-terror police that wow. okay well, you're a brown kid going through I mean I was too young to really understand it but I was like okay maybe this is just what's going to happen from now on and I suppose it's only the first time this year I've been to an airport and not been randomly selected so that was when we we're going to Turkey so maybe they thought I was Turkish as opposed to being an Arab or something <laughs> but that's what I've always been called so just I think even now people think I'm Portuguese or Spanish or Mexican or something like that. I suppose I'm doing November at the moment um, as well. And that's something at school, I remember getting detention because I was 13, 14, having a bit of facial hair. Um, my mum was always like, no, he's not going to shave till he's 16, 17, 18, because it's, it's just not good for you. Um, so now I can grow a very good tash and beard, thanks to it. But <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just, it's strange that now like November is, is a thing when for me growing up with it, it was always... You know, you need to shave because otherwise you can get detention again. Well, November's now, celebrated, isn't it? Now that's yeah, the what, difference. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's the first time I've done it this year, but it is. I don't know. I'm still sort of a bit embarrassed. I'm glad we do still wear masks. Um, it's, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's. I think it's, it's those sort of things, really. I mean, the more you talk about it, yeah, it is just crazy. Some of the stories that you hear. And it, mm. Again, this is my lived experience. This is, you know, what you've said is your lived experience. But there's other people who've been through worse. In, in all sorts of places so absolutely and I think that for me that's definitely my constant reminder is as bad as I think I've had it someone's had it worse and all, all I really have to do is look to my brothers as men they would have had it worse my brother's given me so many stories of being stopped by the police or being um, chased down the road and, and all of that and for me just I just box it up and think okay well that's nice but it's not but it's not my experience but so when I think I've had it bad I, I always always just try to remind myself somebody out there is having it so much harder and more unfair than I, than I am I, I I guess there's a there's something about the, the thing the journey that I'm on at the moment is I'm reading a couple of books and, and I do that I don't know why I just don't stick to one I, should, I, like, I don't know honestly um, <laughs> that's <laughs> multitasking to the nth degree that is <laughs> multitasking or procrastination I haven't <laughs> it if I just can't commit and then just move go from side to side but anyway there's two on the go they're both very similar about each other one is called invisible women the other one is called why men hate women and I'm, I'm doing this because I think the last couple of years I've begun to understand very much about how my skin colour and my race and heritage has influenced my life experience. The part that I don't understand very well is my femininity. I understand my femininity in my culture. I understand why it exists in the way that it exists in my culture and how my parents have brought me up. What I don't necessarily have a grip on or um, I guess comp I don't feel competent to discuss is how my femininity plays out in my work plays out in my life every day walking down the street I don't get that and the books are just phenomenal for me to start understanding small little snippets of, of information one one thing being I didn't realize until reading one of the books was 
75% of unpaid work in the world is completed by women. And I thought, wow, yeah, it's just, it's incredible. And it's just something that sticks in with me. And also it is more, when you're in a room or you're in a meeting, irrespective of hierarchy, grade or, super, or seniority, if there are notes to be taken or admin to be done, it is more often quite commonly the woman that will be looked upon to and this literally happened to me last week that will be looked upon to take the notes and take the minutes of the meeting especially if you are not a white woman and it played out in a meeting that was my meeting and it was I was the one leading and chairing and it was all shrinking take the notes and what do you say you just kind of you get on with it you get on with it you do it and but it was the reflection for me to realize wow okay there, there it is I would never have noticed it I would never have thought of it but reading and learning that's my current journey about me and and that element of myself gosh and can I ask Shireen in in terms of your role when you're working within EDI what is it that you're actually doing now for kind of the workforce yeah sure so um currently what I'm focused on is uh, what we're calling inclusive recruitment and promotional practices in the NHS um it's a long program. I think it's it'll be naive to think we can fix recruitment in the NHS in in a, in a month, because there's so much so wrong in the way that we do things. Um, recruitment pathway in itself is a long pathway, all the way from job creation, job description, um, platforms in which we advertise, attracting candidates, platform uh, methods in which we attract candidates. We've not even got to interview yet, and there's so much involved in that pre-work that actually does need to change about who we attract and how we can attract diversely. Um, I guess, so that there's kind of four systems, four, four pillars that are underpinning the programme at the moment. One is around continuous learning from the seven regions across NHS England. What are the regions doing in their own way? So what we need to, we do recognise is um, the regions all have different demography. So London we know will be, will have a high representation of black and minority ethnic. And if we go somewhere like Southwest, that might not be true. So we're trying to make sure that we're understanding what is actually true and relevant for the regions that, that A, the work they're delivering, B, the recruitment practices they feel they need to overhaul and supporting them in that. Second one is around support and evaluation. Um, I'll put my hands up. I'm, I think I'm, I'm very good and competent in doing work and delivering programmes. I absolutely am terrible at evaluating myself. I'm, it's the bit that I always forget to do all about the doing and just forget to reflect so we need to make sure we're supporting programs and reflecting um there's a third one around continuous research of papers so the nhs we're not the first ones to try and overhaul our recruitment i think there's probably some international colleagues that have done it done it very well and also done it quite badly so how can we learn from them as well mm -hmm. so just keeping our finger on the pulse and then in fourth that was the part around the advertising mechanisms and supportive mechanisms for recruitment. So not just looking at guidance and resource, but also NHS jobs, um, other other job platforms, indeed, track jobs. How are they actually supporting us to recruit inclusively and diversely? There's a whole issue around, um, I guess, the wicked issues, I would call them in recruitment, these things like favouritism, nepotism. You can never prove it, you, but you absolutely know in your gut that it exists and you know you know when you've seen it happen as well. Um, so at the moment, that's kind of the, the big piece of work that I'm, I'm currently focusing on. Well, it sounds absolutely amazing that you're doing this. And I think it's so 
so important that we do that we do embrace the changes that are happening around the recruitment i know um there's there's such a need for a diverse and inclusive workforce um we know it can develop new ways of working and leading to improvement and innovation and i suppose it's vital that colleagues as well and and learners feel that they are supported with the potential so you know like with having you and Naaman as role models it gives people a representation within that but I know I was also doing some work around males into therapeutic radiography Naaman mentioned he feels like a minority being um, a male in therapeutic radiography and we did um, quite a bit of good deep diving really into so social constructs around gender um and it was really interesting some of the conversations that arose as part of the focus groups and we're just getting ready to publish that work now um but it is really interesting to see the impact it can have on our patients so you know like mm. having someone who they feel that they can talk to that they feel that um represents them represents their community um is that something that you've seen as well Shireen in your role in terms of kind of that workforce development and diversity but also then impacting positively on patient groups um yes I think is the short answer I think um again for, for me I, I think I underestimated how much of a role model or how big the role model piece for me would actually be it was only when I became into the national role that there, there's so many Mauritians that work in the NHS, so many, and, it, and, and we, we probably do all know each other by six degrees of separation, I'll be honest, it does happen. Um, but the contacts that I've had where people have said, I think it's great that you're working there, you're, you're, you're role modelling for us, and you're, it's, it's incredible, it's so, we're so proud that we've got a Mauritian person working in, in a national team. Actually, what I noticed in terms of the patient impact and the bit that I'm really, I will always focus on, so again, taking it back to clinical practice, I guess, that patient outcome is, is always going to be my focus. And I was talking to a friend quite recently and um, he'd said to me, like the work that you do, you've been doing it for a while, but when, when do you think you will, you will feel that there has been success? And I'd said to him, for me, my biggest, my biggest beacon is if we can get a screening service for black men for prostate cancers, I'm done. At the moment, we don't even have a screening service for prostate cancer. But we know if we take it back into cancers, there are inequalities and and varied uh, variability of, of how cancers present in people, depending on their demographic, depending on their on their ethnicity, their age. We already do gender and age for breast cancer screenings. That's already in existence. So that those are two protected characteristics. Yet when it comes to ethnicity, we don't have any screening programs for cancers that live within your ethnic makeup and you might be more likely to have X cancer, Y cancer, whichever one it can be, but we know there are, there are ethnic variances. So for me, the minute our screening service can actually start to focus on the characteristics that we know impact, and it could be they impact because of socioeconomic uh, or deprivation issues, but we know, for example, prostate cancer, black men are twice as more likely to get prostate cancer than white men, twice as more likely. Mm -hmm. That's not even, that's incredible. Yeah. And, and we know for late stage breast cancers, twice as, twice as likely in, in non-white females. It's just, it's unbelievable. And yet in our screening programs and our prevention programs, we just don't look at ethnicity. 
so for me that's the part that I'm really trying to I don't work in the health inequalities team but where I can focus on the conversations I can have that is the area that I think we need to be focusing on because our patients are our staff and our staff are our patients so when we talk about workforce health and well-being workforce wellness part of that is understanding that the workforce is also our patient group yeah and that leads nicely Naaman doesn't it onto the work that you're doing uh, within radiotherapy yeah, I suppose so. It's, um, I think as you, you're getting quite passionate, Shireen, that's that's exactly what it is. Is we've we've seen that there are these issues, and there are people like us who want to do something about it. I suppose. Um, so there's a a skincare survey going out at the moment. Um, so I'm working, or I suppose leading the the survey with the Society and College of Radiographers. Um, so just following on from the the like the guidelines that came out last year. Um, so sent out a you know to look at confidence levels if you want so comparing how people find um recognizing skin reactions from so like a radiotherapy skin reaction on the patient's skin uh, from white skin compared to darker skin tones um i think without being biased i'd always have a gut feeling that it's going to be when when a white person um if, if that's their demographic background that they've said um they um will find that darker skin tones you know they're not as confident in recognizing it Mm. um and i think that's why there's always been something for me that skincare and radiotherapy isn't as standardized as we want it to be um but actually now with the darker side of things darker skin tones working in area in an area now where there are more patients with dark skins skin tones um it's quite prevalent that there is still an issue um and you know confidence is quite a fluffy term for research but i think it's an important place to start you can't just dive in and say this is all wrong this needs to be better it needs to be need to ask everyone what you know what is it they think and actually one of the comments that's really stuck with me um about why you know maybe some people think there isn't a difference between white and darker skin so one of the the comments that i've seen is because textbooks always show white skin wow um, i just I yeah i just didn't really know what to to say to that um maybe it's true fine but why does it not show all skin types so I mean, there are types of white skin that would be get even worse skin reactions as well. So it's not just has to be a darker skin tone. Mm. So I think erythema or, you know, redness due to radiotherapy skin reactions. I think lots of people, maybe because of lack of experience of seeing it, um, don't know that it shows, it doesn't show up as red on a patient. So someone with very dark skin, because it's very highly pigmented, um, it'll actually look darker. Um, and even then, if it's someone with really, really pigmented skin, you might not even see it until it breaks down and then... You know, it's if you're using some of the scoring systems, it's quite far down where you need to intervene with dressings, etc. Mm -hmm. um, so obviously, yeah, it, it's amazing to be looking into it. It's quite eye-opening, um, but I'm hoping some good will come with it. I'm working with quite a few people who are very supportive, which is nice. Um, so it'd be good to analyse all the data um, and sort of keep working with the Society and College of Radiographers. So trying to make skincare more inclusive. Um, there's a brilliant charity on Instagram um, who I followed for a while and I'm trying to do some work with soon as well um, called Black Women Rising um, who've shared like a, a very beautiful exhibition of just women um, who have been through cancer treatment and they're just showing off their skin to tackle so comments like those. Um, it's brilliant, deserves a lot more attention than I think it's probably getting at the moment. Um, so I'm hoping to showcase more on the racial and ethnic disparities and outcomes from radiotherapy um, next year as um, I think I'm allowed to talk about this. I didn't check, but <laughs> I'm in... sure you are. Nathan, <laughs> um, so quite exciting for me um, as someone quite junior, I suppose. But I've been invited to speak at um, Estro, so Estro 2020, 
Um, I'm not going to try and say what ESRO stands for because I don't remember, um, but it's quite <laughs> a big conference if you haven't heard of it. Um, so I just want to say a huge thank you to Professor Hardy Price for suggesting me uh, to the committee and hopefully um, it will inspire others to make radiotherapy a bit more inclusive and all the data that comes out of this survey, it'd be great to publish it and use it for good, I suppose. And I think, as I said, it's going to be quite eye-opening, um, but it, someone has to take the first step. Naaman, I think it's absolutely amazing. And I definitely think it's about opening that door to conversations and educating people. Um, I think as, as the survey's already highlighting from some of the preliminary data and stuff that you've seen, you know, there is disparity, there is lack of education. And, you know, as a white person, I, I know I don't get it right, but I need to be educated and I need to ask those questions. But I definitely think that these that these kinds of projects and you being able to kind of open and shine a light on some of these things will also make us think about other areas of radiotherapy practice you know like thinking about tattoos I've had a student before who I know was really affected by the fact that therapeutic radiographers would shine a torch onto black women's skin when they were looking for tattoos and I had never thought about it before uh, you know it's something that I'm quite ashamed to admit that I had never considered how that could be quite distressing for someone but as soon as someone had said it to me it was like a light bulb and I was like yes of course like of course why would you want someone to shine a, a light around your breast region or around your pubic reason region if you're looking for tattoos um so I definitely think that it's things like this will make people just consider what they're doing in their everyday practice that they don't realize how it can affect people i remember um i'll something so something you've said there Naaman, as well was when i was training again a long long time ago now uh, when i was training um one of the one of my colleagues in my classmates really um had asked the lecturer about skin reactions and um there was, we were probably, I mean, back then there was only 12 of us in, in, on the course at the times, and we were actually 50-50 split, so 50 uh, white classmates and 50 non-white. And one of the non-white but fair-skinned classmates that had asked the question of the lecturer about what happens to, what happens to our skin, she'd said, when, um, when you talk about redness. And the lecturer's response, so I, I was the darkest one in the room, so like darker brown. And the lecturer's response was, oh, why don't we ask Shireen? So I, I then had to give my, and, and again, innocently, although I was much older, I was like teens, I, I should have known better. I, should, I could have pushed back, but obviously I didn't because that was my journey then. Um, but innocently, I just gave a story of what happens when I'm in the sun and I just go dark and I don't sunburn. And, but that's me. I'm, I'm a dark-skinned woman who doesn't sunburn. I know many who do. But Damon, what you said there as well, the opportunity window. I remember having a conversation with um, colleagues when I first started working, when I was down on Dor in Dorset Coast. And you can imagine in Dorset, representation wasn't exactly great. It was predominantly white. Um, we'd have the odd non-white um, patient come through. And I remember saying to them, the skin might break down. Might, I think it's breaking down now because I could see, knowing how my skin reacts in the sun, even though it's not the same thing, no, 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 we're not there yet, we're not there yet. And literally overnight, the poor lady's skin just broke. And it was, that's the thing, the opportunity window, whereas with somebody with white skin, you might, you might see it leading into five days, come a Friday, think, oh, we'll get that before it goes, it goes 
bad on a Monday, but for somebody like me, you've got Tuesday, Wednesday, and, and that's it. That's all you've got. Yeah. So that education piece, I think, is is really, really important. And also on Estro, don't downplay it. That's incredible that you're that you, you're there. I also think you've said you've just said as well that I'm quite I'm somebody quite junior. Clearly in this space you're not because they've asked you to attend at quite a quite a phenomenal platform. So yeah, well done. I think I think it's gonna be a really good piece of work. Thank you. Um, I'm hoping some good comes from it. I think another element is sort of cultural differences. I know you've done some work on it. So one of the things I've noticed for skincare is obviously there are some patients from a Mediterranean background. Yeah. They don't use cream, they use olive oil. Um, and that doesn't really work for radiotherapy. Um, so that, yeah, the cultural differences are, it's, it's very interesting because every culture, I mean, you know, there are sort of female patients who um, wear hijabs or burqas and that's something that isn't something that I'm going to be able to get into that easily, but it, that is another conversation as part of cultural differences that is really important because mm. um, that skin that isn't always in sunlight. Um, so, yeah, I, I know you've done some work around cultural differences, Shireen. Yeah, so definitely within the um, within the health and wellbeing space, we, we tried to lean into as much as we could on cultural differences of understanding very much, if we take it back to the pandemic, very much understanding how people grieve. So the option of grief in this country is is looks one way really, but actually during the pandemic, knowing the pandemic impacted different cultures, different types of people differently and quite severely as well. We had to do a quick learning on how people do mourn, the fact that some cultures will have 40 days of mourning, some cultures will have a whole year of mourning. And there's those cultural differences that we need to just understand exist in our workplace because that's impacting a staff member and when staff members again we saw something similar when the, the delta variant was quite um, prevalent in india and we had to then take into account and give managers advice about time difference and understanding that some staff over here might need to step out of clinic or out of the ward and make a phone call to check on their families in india because the time difference was as such so yeah cultural cultural differences i think there's there's a lot that we need to do lot we have done but there's a lot that we need to do more of to understand what variances we have a within our workforce but also within our patient demographic um interestingly at the moment i'm this week i'm working for chks to do their one of their audits um and the i guess divine intervention whichever we call it um the hospital they're looking at at the moment we're looking at is the hospital in Mauritius. So clearly I was like, I am definitely being involved in that one. So, and, and, I, and I'm so proud as well. I must admit, I'm not very proud of the work I do. I don't always glow like that, but I'm incredibly proud of this survey because it does feel a bit of giving back. And it was been a really interesting conversation with them today was around their cultural differences. So the country's quite a multicultural country, but understanding how they deliver care. And then for me to remind myself, my own cultural differences of, what it means to be Mauritian, not Indian, but also an Indian passing woman. It, it's, it, there's so much variation in the people that we have working in the NHS that the assumptions that we make as well, where we see people who look Indian and assume they all are Indian origin. Some people can be Kenyan. I myself am Mauritian, but I know I'm Indian passing. Um, and also when we talk about variation, there's, there's huge variations within black, black communities, um, Caribbean, African, it, yet we assume and we group together even in workforce race quality standards up until recently everything's been grouped into that black and minority ethnic category 
and we all belong in that space but what we're doing now on a national piece is actually trying to disaggregate that so that we can understand what it means to be a black woman or a an asian man and when we look at things like nhs staff survey how does that actually how does those intersectionalities play out in some of the data that we know we we have and exist and trying to be, get a bit more intelligence out of that i think very interesting work um i suppose one quick question about it how do you feel about the term bame Oh, I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> <laughs> if Naaman hadn't have asked it, I definitely would have asked it. <laughs> um, my, my feeling is we have needed a term that um, encaptures all of us. I think there is a clear connection between those who are not white having very similar experiences, albeit that those experiences are varied within themselves. So there's a scale of discrimination isn't there there's a real real bottom bottom and then something that looks a little bit discriminatory but not quite as bad as others i think um it benefits us to talk about individual individuality and intersectionality so even in the term bane we don't include gender we don't include sexual orientation um we don't include age i think age is just one that we forget about all the time we don't include disability um so for me i'm i'm quite comfortable and quite happy to carry on using black and minority ethnic or BAME or bme because i think it for the context that we need to talk about the, what we talk about it's still relevant however when i know that there are worse cases within certain communities i will call the community out and and name them because i don't think it's fair to bundle that all into one um there's obviously been papers written, government government uh, concepts that have been written recently that say otherwise. Um, I'm not going to dispute them. I think it's yeah, that's just another, uh, definitely another conversation. But also, I think it's important that what we do say is relevant for the people that we're talking about. And I still find that it's relevant for me. I don't I don't cringe when someone calls me black minority ethnic woman because that's that's what I am. But I, interestingly, actually, I I do cringe when someone calls me an Indian woman because that's what I'm not. Mm. So I think that's the difference that we need to understand that if we're going to be naming people and we're going to ask or be curious about individual identity, we need to be curious but accurate. So I would far rather ask you name and, oh, exactly where are you from? What was your heritage? What, what, what? I'd rather be acquisitive than make an assumption. Yeah, yeah. And there's a way of asking where someone's from. Absolutely. Um, so it's quite a big microaggression. Mm. To be honest, I'm sure I've probably said it in the wrong way to someone before in the past, but um, there's a, a lady, who, a nurse by background, who I worked with called Sun Young. Um, so she wrote a paper around microaggressions. She, she did a lot of training uh, where I worked before, but she, it was the same for her that people, oh, let's say with patients, I would always, still always get it. Oh, where are you from? And say, oh, well, yeah, I, I live in southwest London. So no, no, where, where are you really from? And that's implying that I'm not from here. I mean, fine, technically speaking, I'm not, but there's a way of asking. So, you know, oh, have you always lived around here? Or yeah. is this your home hospital or something like that? I think when the whole Brexit situation happened, again, as you said, people presuming what you are. Mm -hmm. So quite a few patients where I worked in the Southwest were, oh, well, what are you going to do? Have you, got a, you know, have you got a visa now to stay? So actually, I've got dual nationality, so yeah. I, can, I can do what I want. <laughs> Um, but then trying to educate them, I, I don't know. I still don't think it's my, I don't, I don't think I need to. I think if, if that's your view, that's your view. I think times are changing a bit. Um, I can only say what I can say. And actually for patients now, 
I'm very, very happy to call them out and say, look, we work on a traffic light system. One more comment. It's up to you. We, we can take it further through security, my management, et cetera. But I think before maybe I wasn't as confident and maybe oh. the whole Black Lives Matter movement, all of that, that everything came out. It was so raw for me. Um, like I really struggled with the emotion. And then obviously you've got the pandemic going on anyway. And then my family being in India when it was getting really bad, like it, it was tough. But now oh. it's now I can take a step back and think, okay, well, this is what's happened. This is what's going to happen. This is how I want to approach it. And actually, yeah, I am Indian by background. Um, I can cook very good Indian food. I can speak three Indian languages. I speak to patients in Hindi, sometimes Gujarati or Punjabi, but yeah. not many other people can do that. And actually, in where I work in Northwest London, it's very diverse. And actually, I know for the community that are there, it's quite nice for them knowing, okay, in radiotherapy, there's someone who speaks Hindi. And then branching out to lots of people um, who I work with on the treatment floor who also speak there's probably at least 10 to 15 different languages our department speak and, and that's amazing yeah. like think okay you know how much interpreters get paid yeah. i think how much money we're saving <laughs> <laughs> but it's those little differences i just i don't i'm starting to celebrate them more whereas before i was always scared to talk about it but now i think well actually it's, it's a huge asset to a team mm. i'm sure both of you what you've worked in you know in all your diverse kind of background everyone who's been in your team or through covid you know all the inclusive interviewing and stuff that is happening it, it is changing but yeah it's, it's a start yeah i certainly know from an educational perspective we've seen absolute huge changes not enough and it and it needs to happen quickly but we definitely are starting to think about equality diversity inclusive training um for all of our admission staff and not not kind of train when I say training there is a difference isn't there between that whole kind of fire safety or yeah. tick box exercise because I get really frustrated by that because that doesn't that doesn't educate anyone you know I've learned so much tonight from you and Naaman already it's having the space to have those conversations ask the questions you know know what it is from um, being a minority how can I ask those questions well how is it appropriate what you know what things can I say or shouldn't I say and you know it's it's having those opportunities and um, so I'm really pleased that a lot of the higher education institutes are making that change now around the recruitment of future workforce and I'm I really celebrate the fact that actually radiography in the UK a really diverse workforce um, you know at Sheffield Hallam University 50% of our cohort um, are from minority background and I really celebrate that but do we do enough to be inclusive maybe not necessarily and it's about making but I definitely think um, it's important for us to learn from our students about their cultures their religions and to feed that into then the education the training the of resource sure that they feel that they are represented in all of the um, learning resources that we that we deliver and also then making sure that's translated into clinical practice so embedding kind of our inclusion and training and things but from my perspective I got um, I asked one of our students to do a 360 for me around EDI which was amazing and for anyone in academia or even you know a manager in a department ask people ask them to take a critical reflective view on things that you've done or what you do or the you're producing 
um, the protocols that you're developing because that is how you will essentially get get to develop things in a way that you've never necessarily thought about it before. Um, so I hope from yours and Shireen's perspective that you feel that that's the appropriate way to go. But I hope from some perspective we're able to really develop that quickly. Um, and I would just like to say that, you know, for you two sharing your stories, I know how nervous, I know Naaman and I had a conversation earlier today, and it is it is really scary to share personal experiences and especially disclosing those that are of difficult memories. So I just wanted to kind of say thank you so much, you know, for you both being inspirational influencers and being able to hopefully help drive cultural change and amplify key messages, I think is so important. So thank you both so much for tonight. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it's been good. And I think something we've talked about as well is how COVID has shone a light on health, in health, yeah, can't talk now, health <laughs> inequalities. Um, so yeah, I think as you said, Joe, it'd be quite good to look into all of these for a bit further. Um, yeah. It's probably a good start for EDI this series anyway and mm -hmm. i've really enjoyed it today it's scary but it's been good um so yeah so thank you for everyone and Shireen again thanks so much for coming on um so your hosts have been uh joe and i uh Naaman. uh huge thank you again to you Shireen. um i'm getting a bit emotional so i'm gonna i might let joe just finish this if that's, no, right. that's fine so if you are utilizing this podcast for cpd purposes consider the reflective questions posted alongside this podcast along with links to resources and literature discussed within the podcast. And to receive your CPD digital badge, please complete the link we've posted to. So our next guest to feature will be Nicola Jameson, who is the Society College of Radiographers Student Officer, and we will be discussing her role and support for students. So take care, everyone, and good night. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks.